I'm Georgine Huang, CEO and co-founder of Fairy God Boss, and this is Fairy God Boss Radio. Hello and welcome to Fairy God Boss Radio. Today, we're excited to be joined by Ramo Colarusso, Vice President of Janssen Supply Chain. Ramo, welcome to the show. Hey, I'm very happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So let's get started by telling us about your career journey. How did you get to where you are today? Wow, it's a long career, so I'll try to keep it as short as possible. But, you know, I'm a chemical engineer, a graduate from Rutgers University, and was always very interested in technical things. Both my mother and my father were chemistry majors. So my mom, I'll say, you know, leading the edge of STEM way back in the 50s when she was a chemist at Avon LaRoche. I went on to do things in technical spaces, engineering space specifically, and but soon determined uh, that I was more interested in business and leading broadly in a technical space than being a technical specialist. So I started my career at Colgate-Palmolive in technical spaces, engineering roles, went to a company called J.M. Huber, an industrial company, and then came to J&J, where I've been now here for over 30 years, working in engineering roles, manufacturing roles, supply chain roles in general, planning and, and other parts, but also worked in R&D even for four years or so before coming back to supply chain. So it's been a technically focused career, but the one which I've actively sought to diversify my experiences in doing many, many different things and managing teams in many, many different areas. It's great that you found a place where you can evolve and explore so many different aspects of your career over 30 years at J&J. Yeah, you know, when I started, I was at my first job for three years, my second job for a couple of years, and I said, oh, here's another job. I have no idea how 30 years has come by, but I'll tell you, J&J is a company with so many different businesses, so many different experiences that you could have. It certainly satisfied my curiosity for learning new things over the course of those 30 years, and, and here I am so many years later continuing to learn and try to get better. It's wonderful. You know, we often have a lot of women on the show, and I'd love to hear from you about an example or a time in your career when a woman leader or colleague made a significant impact on you. If you don't mind sharing, you know, how do you think that might have affected the trajectory of your career, for example? Well, you know, I'm going to give you a couple of examples because I don't think there's one lightning bolt moment when it comes to how you feel about things in this space. I mentioned in the beginning, you know, my mom was a chemistry major, graduated college in the 50s. You know, women were just not in industry. She was working at a pharmaceutical company. And so even though later on she chose to stay at home with the family that we had, you know, she was always one that took charge. And, you know, you could tell she was at work was the same as, as she was at home in terms of driving for each of us to excel and value education. And so I'd say the first one is my mom. That was the first one that had a big impact for me. Also through high school, I'd say I, I started to get a feeling for what diversity is in general, not just under gender, because I played jazz music, right? So I was a professional jazz trumpet player for a while. And one thing about music, it's the great equalizer. It doesn't matter what you look like, what instrument you played, what gender you were. And if you were good, I wanted to play with you and I wanted to learn from you. And that sort of like taught me that it doesn't matter what people's background is. 
doesn't matter what ethnicity they are or what gender they are. If they're good, they're going to be able to contribute and you're going to learn. So that was another early experience just, you know, in terms of forming my views on diversity in general. And I think one of the seminal moments for me actually happened literally just a few months after I started working in my first job. I was sent to the Philippines, interestingly enough. I spent a good six weeks there. And I was there part of a team of another gentleman from Italy and then a woman that also from the U.S. who had five years experience. And one of the things that I witnessed here, I'll never forget it. We were trying to start up a plant. We had a problem. And the local team there, which was all men, were trying to ask for ideas. And the woman who has five years experience, when I had three months, she gave them exactly what they should be doing. And then I turned around and said, well, what do you think? You know, almost ignoring her. I'm like, well, I think we should do exactly what Melanie said we should do. But I remember that moment because she got so upset that she just left the work site. This is like 11 o'clock at night. And it opened my eyes for the first time that just being a man, you know, had a certain respect to it. And her being a woman had less respect. And that bothered me, I guess, because of the upbringing that I had. You know, good news was I got her to turn around. We went back to the plant. But, you know, Melanie is still a friend of mine all these many years later. And that was a a seminal moment for me to kind of just say, you got to watch out for these types of things that happen in the workplace because they're not right. And honestly, you know, it, it gets in the way of doing the best thing, right? Right. Well, thank you for sharing those stories. I also am a former jazz musician, so I can really relate to what you said. I'm a saxophonist. And I'm sure that this experience early on in your career with your colleague, Melanie, made you a more empathetic leader as well. And actually, that brings me to the next topic I want to talk about, which is, you know, we've made a lot of progress since you described your mother going to college for chemistry in the 50s in terms of working in a more gender balanced workplace and having a more gender balanced STEM workforce in particular. But there's a lot of work still to be done. And so I'm interested in what actions you might incorporate into your work, your routine, or even outside of work that you think makes you an ally, a male ally to women? Yeah, you know, I think one of the things you got to demonstrate, not just to yourself, but publicly, is is the accountability you have for driving change in this space, right? And so I think it's really important that uh, you lead by example, right? And so uh, give you a good example, you know, at one point in supply chain, it's a very male-dominated uh, space. Uh, it's becoming less so, which is great. But many years ago, when I was part of a leadership team of the supply chain, literally every single person on the leadership team was male. And I remember having a conversation with my boss, who was the leader, and said, we really got to do something different here because whatever we're doing isn't working. And so we made a very concerted effort, you know, around are we really getting diverse slates that matter, right? Are we really populating them with the right set of you know people to give us a real choice and hopefully uncovering where those diverse candidates are. And let me tell you, it's hard to change. And you've got to wait for opportunities to change the mix as people come and go, which is not something that happens in a few weeks or even months. It took years. But I was very, very proud at, you know, at one moment when I was able to take over leadership of this team, you know, we had at that time actually more women than men by a significant degree. And it wasn't by design that it was, okay, we're going to have more women. It was, 
we're going to have diversity of thought. We're a global supply chain. We need diverse thought and we need people from everywhere to probably come up with the best outcomes for whatever problems we're going to face. So being very deliberate and accountable for we are going to make a difference here. We're going to do things differently here. And we're going to reinforce that, right? Like we are going to have diverse slates. And how are we going to do that? I'm going to personally check them, right? And, and now I have my folks, you know, that report to me. You're going to personally check them and so on and so forth. So, you know, being out there and setting a standard, if you will, expectation around, you know, what are the tools and practices you're going to do to increase diverse representation in general are things that I think about not every day, but I think about it in the totality of how are we leading this organization? Right. So you spoke up and started to change recruiting practices. And you said leading by example is a, a really important thing. Is that your tip for men who want to be allies at work, but aren't sure of what to do, and where to start? Do you have any advice for people who feel that way? Well, you know, I do think there's more to it than accountability too. You know, I just actually attended a learning session uh, in this space just a while ago. And one of the things they said was you have to uh, lead loudly, right? So yeah, you can be, you can have your own convictions and you can believe in what you want to believe. But if you don't say it boldly, if people understand, wow, this person stands for this, then you're not going to really be considered or looked at as an ally. And really an ally is, is someone that not only mentors in the space, which is giving advice, but also advocates in the space and therefore puts a little themselves on the line. And I think that's where some folks and some men are reluctant, right? Because, well, if I endorse someone and they don't work out, you know, then that's a reflection on me. Well, it is, right? So then let's form a, a relationship where you're, you're going to minimize the chance where that's going to be a problem. But at the end of the day, we all got to take chances. I mean, people took chances in my career. I was into spaces and jobs where I didn't have all the experience that was required, but that's why it was a development experience, right? You learn and you grow. And I think we have to do the same thing as we have to look at potential of folks, which is harder to find than performance. And we have to take a little bit of risk, but we have to basically lead loudly. And this way, those folks that are looking for that allyship, that are looking for that mentor and sponsorship can at least start a dialogue. That's, and that's the last piece. At some point, you got to start a dialogue that isn't like, hey, I'm here to mentor. Let's get to it. It's got to be more like, I'm interested in your career. Tell me about your career. And, and hey, anytime you want to talk about future, let me know. And open the door, I guess, is the other thing. So lead loudly and open the door and be prepared to advocate for candidates. If you can do that, you can be an ally. And it's just a matter of doing it. And, and I'll tell you, there is nothing more gratifying than seeing people go into areas Maybe they themselves didn't think they were qualified for or could do, and then heading it out of the ballpark. I mean, it is awesome to see folks really accomplish what their potential says they should accomplish. That's wonderful, leading loudly. And I know that we STEM2D has this professional pillar and mission that's a lot around what you just described, you know, inspiring, nurturing, and recognizing groundbreaking female leaders. So I can see that they have your support and you're naturally in tune with everything they're doing. You've been a passionate advocate for female talent and diverse talent, as you've described it to me today. What about in your own organization? It sounds like you mentored and you reached out to people. Can you talk a little bit about what you've done to ignite and sort of fuel the growth of some of the women in your organization? 
Yeah, you know, there's women at all levels in the organization. And I actually get quite a kick out of being able to connect with people at all parts of their career from just starting to folks that are, you know, seasoned, uh, you know, managers in the organization. I think the important thing is you got to really have a coach's mindset, right? I think that's the first thing. You don't need to be telling them what to do. You need to be listening, right? And understanding. Sometimes they just want to be able to bounce a, a problem off of you. Maybe they're external thinkers where they just want to bounce the idea off you and talk through the problem and they get to their own solution. And all you've done is listen. And that's okay. You got to let the candidate or the woman lead the conversation to the extent of what they want to get out of it, but be there and be sort of situational in terms of what they're sort of want or trying to get out of having that connection, you know? And so I just met with, you know, one of our folks that have been in the organization for a couple of years uh, and you get a certain perspective. She's like, well, how do I get to your role? And it's like, well, I'll be honest with you. When I was your age, I didn't think about what I ultimately can get to because I didn't know what was out there. So maybe you should be focused on the next three to 10 years and the next couple of roles and not worry about how I got all the way where I got, because that there are a hundred different ways to get here, right? So I think it's important that you focus on the things that are more manageable in the short term. And she was like, oh, I never would have thought like a 10-year horizon, because it's like that interview question. What do you want to be when you're achieved your, your hell, I don't know. I can't say I don't know in an interview, right? But uh, it's very interesting. As I went through my career, I learned that I didn't know of other opportunities and other things to do until I actually took a bit of a development role in a different area and was exposed to it and said, you know what, that looks more interesting than what I thought I wanted to do before. And I changed the direction, right? And so that'll happen with everybody. So that's one conversation you have. Having a conversation with a senior leader in the organization could be more like, look, 90% of what you've done, you've achieved an amazing success. Let's just talk about the icing on the cake, the 10%. You know, maybe you need to listen a little bit more. Maybe you need to actively manage up as opposed to, especially in the technical space. A lot of people think I do my job, the results speak for themselves. But what I learned, and I think what we all learn as we go through the organization is, yeah, but a lot of times senior managers don't know all those details and you have to somehow manage upward. I read a great book on art of doing this because you don't want to come across as brown nosing either. How to toot your horn without blowing it was the name of the book. <laughs> it, was, it was great because it was basically a, a book on how to manage upward effectively, not in a way which was annoying the senior leaders, but also in a way that was providing some advocacy for what you're doing. Because, you know, as you become a leader in the organization, those are softer skills. They're less objective sometimes. And so, you know, what you accomplish from a business results outcome perspective is less important in terms of those leadership qualities that are going to get you to that next level. So whether it's commenting on just the leadership stuff, uh, managing upwards, listening a little bit more, that's the kind of conversation you have. And then you have everything in between, you know, folks beginning their career uh, to those folks that are very senior in terms of, especially in the middle areas, like, well, you know, you've done this for a certain period of time. What do you really want to do, right? And just having those conversations to really not I'm not going to tell them what to do, but to have them bounce their thoughts off of me and offer some alternative things to think about. And that's kind of how I approach those different uh, mentoring slash interactions that I have with folks across the organization. We're going to turn now to some quick lightning round kind of questions. Cool. So I'm going to just shoot them off at you. Okay. Um, 
Would you be willing to share the advice? You did talk about your family, but I hear you have a daughter. The advice you gave your daughter when she was choosing her major for college and making career choices upon graduation. Yeah, the advice I gave my daughter was very simple. Do something that you love to do. That was number one. Number two, don't think when you're 18 years old, you figured out what you want to do the rest of your life. You'll figure it out, right? So don't worry. Just follow your passions. And that was it. She just wanted everything to be perfect, right? And really hard worker. And she was just getting so stressed about, you know, the choices she had to make and the major she had to declare. And I said, ah, a few years after college, it's not going to matter. She was awesome at math. I'm thinking, I'm an engineer. I'm thinking, yeah, she's going into STEM. She was a finance major. That's what she felt in international business. Those are the two things that that kind of drove her. And she followed her passions and was doing something. She's a consultant now in the life sciences uh, industry. And again, it's not what she ultimately wants to do, but she enjoys what she's doing. And at the end of the day, you work so many hours in the week. If you don't enjoy it, boy, you are wasting your life. So uh, I think that's the biggest thing that I would say was uh, what I told my daughter. Great. What was the first thing you wanted to be when you grew up? Did you want to be a chemist like your parents? I don't know if I ever declared I wanted to be X or Y, but, you know, hanging around two parents that were chemistry majors, you know, and I was, I just happened to also from an aptitude perspective, be much better at math and science than I was about English and writing. And so I just tend, I gravitated that way. And I just knew that I was going to end up somewhere in a technical space like that. And interestingly enough, people call me crazy. It's like, I really like chemistry. <laughs> so I'm like, I guess if I want to be an engineer and I really like chemistry, maybe chemical engineer is my degree. But it wasn't like when I was really young, I said, I want to be a chemical. I had no idea what a chemical engineer was, right? So, so I also know that when you're really good at something or you have an aptitude for something, you tend to do better in it. You tend to enjoy it more. And I like figuring out problems. And at the end of the day, that's what engineers do is they figure out problems as they go along. So I mean, I would really seriously thought about, you know, majoring in music and doing jazz and stuff like that. But I always figured I could do jazz on the side and I could still be a chemical engineer. But the opposite way probably wasn't going to work out. But, you know, those were my two passions when I was coming up through school. All right. Who is one person, dead or alive, that you'd like to have dinner with? Abraham Lincoln. He was amazing. When you think about what he had to manage, the complexity, the ambiguity at a crisis time in American history and how he was able to bring people together that had really different points of view about what needed to be done and his intellect and, and just the way he softly spoke about things in as few words as possible that had the most meaningful impact. I marvel at how he was able to navigate through uh, a sea of problems and figure out a way to get to the end. It would just be great to get uh, an understanding of his thinking process. Okay. What book would you recommend to our audience? From a business perspective, the one book that I resonates with me for a long time is a book called From Good to Great, right? And it really talks about companies that are good. What are those things that you really got to, you know, do to become great? And the one piece that resonated with me is you got to be clear about the harsh realities, right? And that's something like when you're a good company and you're chugging along, you don't want to hear about all the problems and all the challenges and all the harsh realities of, of the competition. You just want to keep reveling in the fact that you're doing well. What I liked about that book was it didn't matter how well you are doing, you could always be better and you could always be great, but you're going to have to approach things 
in a different way with a basically a dissatisfaction with the status quo about almost everything. And that's a book that I, I read and I reread every now and then to kind of just reground myself when I'm weathering some storms. It's a book about how to get better. And I really, really enjoyed that book. All right. Final question. What is the number one piece of career advice you would like to leave our audience with? The one piece of career uh, advice that I have followed pretty deliberately and intentionally across all of my years in business here is that managing your career is more your responsibility than anyone else's. But you need to have a bit of a a framework in in which to do so. And so one of the frameworks that I always use was I called the three in 10, right? And that's the, hey, I can only see 10 years out from where I am today with a, a bit of clarity hey, I'm, a, I'm an engineer, and maybe maybe that clarity is, I want to manage engineers or manage a technical space in 10 years. Okay, great. Well, then what's the job three years from now that you should be going to to kind of build yourself toward that? And what's the job after that that really primes you for that role, right? Always, so I always break it up in these three-year cycles. And, and to me, it's a rolling 310, right? So you get a new job, right? And you now have a different experience. And maybe you found out things were, well, maybe that's not the, the tent you replace I want to be anymore in 10 years. And that shifts a bit and that shifts a bit. And so those 310 framework also includes, hey, those two roles that you have better be diversifying your experience so that you are a candidate for this leadership role 10 years from now, right? Which also involves taking risk, right? Doing things you've never done before, right? And so the one story I share with folks it, for example, is spent 22 years in supply chain at J&J and an opportunity came up to work in R&D and run what we call pharmaceutical development. I looked on a job description just for the hell of it. And, and the first requirement was I had to have 15 years of process development experience, right? I had zero. And, and so I really had to think hard whether I wanted to take the risk, right? But I also knew that it would give me a whole different perspective of the pharmaceutical industry and of supply chain where I was coming from, if I had a a much better grounding in how those drugs came to market. And, you know, I think the reason I took the job because it was probably the highest risk job that I ever took was because I had a sponsor on the R&D side and I had a sponsor on the supply chain side and they were going to help me and and they were going to, you know, help me uh, solve some problems or, or give me some advice when I, probably would need it. And I did. And that was one of the reasons I took the leap. And that's probably the biggest leap I ever took in one shot because it really was in such a new space, right? And when you switch organizations, like you have to build your networks again, you have to uh, understand how things are done so differently. It wasn't a one-step adjacency. It was a jump with both feet, but that's part of the three and 10. I ultimately knew I kind of want to run a supply chain someday. Hey, if I got this experience, that's going to differentiate me, you know, as a leader, uh, if I come back to supply chain. And that's one of the reasons that fit into the 310 plan. And then four years later, I came back to supply chain. And then three years after that, I was able to run a supply chain at J&J. So this is the one piece of advice. This is always have that plan, be deliberate about it, make sure that you're diversifying your experience, i.e. taking risk. And, uh, and look for sponsors to help you in that. And that would be my 
it wasn't really one little piece of uh, advice there, Georgia. So sorry about that. <laughs> oh, I'll take all that we can get. Thank you for your nuggets of wisdom and for sharing your time and a little bit about you and your career with us today. Been my pleasure. I love Barry Godboss, and I love what you're doing to promote uh, women in in the industry and in all the industries. And uh, been my pleasure uh, sharing some of my meager thoughts with you today. Thanks, Rayma. Thanks for joining us today on Fairy Godboss Radio. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and visit us at fairygodboss.com. See you next time.